Early in his career, Luther's enemies framed up his attempts to pull the church away from works righteousness as an effort to promote immorality in Christendom. For the most part, Luther addressed these attacks through his academic writings. But that wasn't enough, so Luther's friend George Blatton requested a clear sermon on the subject of good works to clear the air. When Luther set pen to paper on the subject, he realized a sermon just wouldn't cover it. So he developed a short book, The Treatise on Good Works, released in June of 1520. Rejecting the standards for good works that had been developed over the previous 1500 years, Luther based his understanding of good works on only the Ten Commandments, completely upending the medieval view on good works. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all of our nice cold beer. And we do have a great beer, which we'll feature uh, at our beer break. Just to give you a foretaste of what we're going to be talking about, it's the New Orthodox India Pale, Air, India Pale Ale Series, uh, and it's a good one. West Coast India Pale Ale. 70, 70 plus, I think is what it's called. 70 plus. It's got a lot on the label, so trying to figure out what exactly is the name <laughs> yeah, is a challenge. But you're right, 70 plus. So, yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, let's get into uh, the sermon uh, or the, the, the treatise on good works. So let's, let's sort of take a step back. You know, now, um, we, we started doing this in, uh, to prepare for the, uh, 15, uh, the 500th anniversary. And we went through all the different things pretty much in order as they were happening. And somehow, when we were doing that, we missed out on the treaties of good works. We covered a lot of the other stuff that happened in the summer of 1520, and we missed out on the treaties uh, on good works. And so we're sort of doubling back here a little bit and covering this now. Um, So let's take a step back and think about what was happening in 1520. So in 1520, there isn't yet have happened the Diet of Worms. He's not excommunicated from the church yet. Um, And he has started uh, something in Germany in 1517 with the 95 Theses. He's got the Heidelberg Disputation, the Leipzig Debate. Uh, There's a lot happening. And then in 1520, he's writing the... Babylonian captivity, the freedom of of a Christian, and this treatise on good works. These are kind of the three biggies of that year in 1520. Huge, huge. And, and uh, honestly, you know, the, the, as we were going forward and and you know, I think last time we were looking at like 1526 the uh, and and we kept referencing back to the treatise on good works and I kept saying I uh, kept wanting to say, "Oh, listen to our podcast Oh, there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah, we hadn't covered that one in an episode yet. So, so here we are. Um, so, you know, Luther kicked off his uh, his writing career, his public writing career, con- demonstrating his concern for common folk and their relationship with good works. In his first published book, the Seven Penitential Psalm Psalms, which was just before that was in the middle of 1517. Um, shortly after, Luther released the 95 Theses, and that, that was also concerned about people's relationship, the common folks' relationship with, with sin, right and wrong, all of that. that this is all, part, that, all of this was really on his mind at that time. What did it mean to live a life of faith, not only in the church, 
but in the daily vocational life of the people of Christendom. Right. And the church largely was set up on all good works are what are done in church. Right. And in our introduction, we said he's going to upend the medieval view of good works. And that's largely just on the basic definition, what is a good work? Yeah. And and this was, you know, uh, ethics, the concept of ethics in the medieval period was really, you know, for example, was really what happened in church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was all about, you know, priests were making money praying for people because, well, you know, if you wouldn't it's pray. It's a good work to pray. It's a good work to pray. And, well, you know, you're not worthy. So and you it's even go, better if it's a priest. Right. Right. And uh, that just is just one small example of the kind of, in our mind today, crazy view of good works that was very common in the middle medieval period. And Luther just takes that whole thing, and rightly so. You know, we, we, I, in, the, in the opening, we said it's the, the idea of good works developed over the previous 1,500 years. And maybe that's, it's, it's, it had become sort of this top-heavy sort of idea of good works. It, it, the good works weren't being done by the common people, actually just going to work and taking care of your family and helping out your neighbor whenever. Those weren't good works. It's just what people do. The real good works happen in church. The real good works happen by the priests. The real good works happen by the, the pope. And, and Luther just tore that apart. T- Timothy Wengert, in a, a book about this uh, treatise on good works, said, Today the term good works is often associated with acts of charity in general. But in late medieval theology, it designated acts of religious devotion and charity that made up for sins committed by believers and were considered meritorious for salvation. And so take that definition. A good work is anything you do to recover from a sin. Right. And so then it's all church focused. So it's all penitential that good works intersects with the, the, the 95 theses directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's what Luther. This is really the same. It's it's more of a because the ninety five theses were were more academic. It was to to go. It was meant for a, an academic discussion. This is actually for the the common people. The the treatise on good works is a very accessible. And when Luther says you are justified by grace through faith that by faith in God, you have received the forgiveness of sins, that the righteousness of Christ is yours through faith, people then responded to that by charging him that his position implied that believers were free from the obligation to perform any good works at all. Right. Because the idea is if you have no sins to make right, then there's no need for good works. If good works are only viewed in a transactional relationship of paying back for the sins that you've done, and if sins are completely forgiven in Christ, then what role do good works have in the life of a Christian if they're not dealing with a debt? Right. And one of the things, as I've been going through this and trying to get understanding of what the view of good works was in 1515, just before the summer of 1517, even generally speaking in 1520, and you see Luther burst onto the scene and everything changes so dramatically, so fast. And, And it gives me... Personally, it gives me, you know, sometimes it's, it's easy to sort of think that 
the culture today, things today are terrible. And I think, you know what? Things aren't as bad today as they were in 1515. Well, in 1515, your soul was in a constant state of crisis because the scales of justice are being measured and you never know where do you fit in that. Are you good? Are you bad? Have you done enough? Do good works and then you will have meritorious goodness that you not only have for yourself, but maybe if you do enough, you have enough to share with someone you love and care for. Good works are entirely self-serving in this system of 1515. Right. But the 95 Theses 95 come about in 1517, and now we've got the security of forgiveness of sins by the righteousness of Christ and not by your own righteousness. What role do good works have? This is the confusion the Reformation starts. Luther is being directly attacked by creating the impression that God didn't care about our good works anymore, that everything in the whole character of good works is useless now. Yeah, there was this idea that good works were holy works. That this, this, there was like, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't holy, if it didn't have to do with the church, then it wasn't a good work. And if you don't need holy works, then what are we talking about? Exactly, exactly. And so then there's this thought that this might create an outbreak of licentiousness, uh, a lawlessness. And even among the princes and nobility, those who are very supportive of Luther, they want to make sure that just there's order and good character among the people in their kingdoms. And that includes Frederick the Wise, who was protecting Luther. And Frederick the Wise was also concerned about this misunderstanding, and he wanted to get that cleared up. Is Luther advocating for lawlessness? Right. Luther says no. Well, then George Blatton, kind of Luther's connection at the Saxon court, says, well, then write something about it. Give us a sermon. And Luther is going to start working on it, and then he realizes it's not going to be just a sermon. It's going to be... It's going to be a book. Well, and the funny thing is, is that, and I can sort of understand where Luther stood at that time. It's like, oh, yeah, it's easy. Just look at the Ten Commandments. That's what he says, yeah. That's, uh, his idea is, oh, a quick sermon, boom, done. And yeah. then it's like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> so in March, George writes to Luther and says, is that sermon you've been working on in good works done almost? Luther writes a letter that very same day and says, I don't remember having this conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. Then we have a letter that Luther writes two days later and says, you know, I remember what you're talking about. I'm working on it. We're going to do great. (laughs) I totally think that Luther's like, oh, was I supposed to do that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) So he gets this letter. Where is the sermon? I don't know what you're talking about. Two days later, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm well on my way to being finished. With it. <laughs> yeah. He's like a kid who forgot his homework. He runs right. off, starts putting something together. So that's March. Uh, by June, it's ready for publication. And he, in German, it's just, it's on good works is and, what it's called. And so the book was dedicated to John, the brother of Frederick the Wise. This is John, eventually to come to be known, John the Steadfast. And right at this moment, he's known as Duke John, because Frederick the Wise is the elector, so that's Elector Frederick the Wise, and Duke John is the next in line that's going to take over and be the elector and be in charge of the Saxon court. And, and to this day, I, I wasn't able to find anything that said why Luther picked John, just that it was interesting. Uh, you know, my own conjecture 
is that Luther had a political component to that, where he's maybe the concern, you know, maybe Frederick was more confident in Luther's stance. John showed a little bit more concern about the role of good works in Lutheranism and that Luther was addressing that. I don't know. but Yeah, what I've learned is that uh, John is already embracing Lutheranism, while Frederick the Wise is keeping somewhat of a handoff okay. um, of distance. And once Frederick the Wise dies, uh, John Frederick immediately encourages a visitation of all the Saxon churches to see how they're doing and making advancements. I think Luther is is feeding okay. the excitement of John with this. Oh, that, that's great. dedication. So at the very beginning of the treaties, Luther establishes his goal. And I'm going to read exactly what he says. There is no silver, gold, precious stone, or rare treasure that has as many substitutes as good works. Yet of all things, good works should have a single, simple goodness. Without that, they are just color, glitter, and deceit. So Luther's basically saying that the idea of good works has been made, made way, way, way too complicated than it should be with all the indulgences and pilgrimages and fasting and almsgiving and everything else that, again, all, all the rules for cloisters, all the rules for monasteries, all the rules for how the mass should be done, uh, the number of times you should use the rosary. He just sees this super abundance of rules um, making it confusing. And so his goal is to simplify good works. So the first thing he, he, he says, the first thing to know is that there are no good works except those works God has commanded, just as there is no sin except that which God has forbidden. And then Luther supports that with a bunch of scripture. And that's going to be the character through each of the points he makes in this treatise on good works. There's going to be a point that he makes. He's going to show what it looks like in the life of a Christian. And then he's going to back it up with several scripture passages. And this is one of the things I love about early Luther. Later Luther tends to make the assumption that everybody understands the, the there's not as much walk through of the scripture support yeah the early luther he spends a lot of time and he'll put four five six biblical references for every position that he takes so on the simplicity of good works the biblical reference he makes is from john six when the jews asked jesus what must we do to be doing the good work of god jesus answered this is the good work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent. And this becomes that starting point for Luther, the first commandment. You shall have another gods. Luther makes the point that the first commandment is nothing more than this, a call to have faith in God. And so if we remember, Luther's starting point is justification by grace through faith in Christ. Faith is the starting point of our relationship with God that turns it from one of fear of the anger and wrath of God towards one of trust in the mercy of God. That's the first commandment. And this this specific scriptural reading is actually really, at least to me, it's very important uh, because, uh, you know, I've, and I've mentioned many times on this podcast that I come from a Catholic background. And especially when I was growing up, I think the Catholic Church is more interested in teaching um, uh, scripture today. But, you know, back in the day, not so much. And and the uh, the it really is good to have that understanding of what is the foundation. What this is a great foundational text coming from Christ Himself on what is good works. The good work that God asks of you is to believe in Him. And so then, what does this mean for Luther? All these works of prayers, fasting, establishing endowments. 
Uh, the endowments would be established in cloisters and monasteries and things like that to secure prayer for a loved one for an extended amount of time. Uh, all of these things, he said, apart from faith, they amount to nothing and they are dead. So then Luther goes into, so what are good works? And Luther says, if you ask further what they consider it a good work when a man works at his trade, walks, stands, eats, drinks, sleeps, and does all kinds of good works for the nourishment of his body or for the common welfare, and whether they believe that God is well pleased with them, you will find that most people will say no, and that they define good works so narrowly that they are made to consist only of praying in church, fasting, and almsgivings. Luther says all these things, working, eating, drinking, sleeping, and everything we do are good works if they're done in faith. And he's going to make this point that if you are covered in the righteousness of Christ, then everything you do is covered in the righteousness of Christ. And this gets into, and Luther, uh, he doesn't cover it as much here in this document, but in later documents, he spends a lot of time talking about the two kingdoms Mm -hmm. and talking about, hey, you know, if you're a magistrate, if you're a judge, if you're a father, whatever role you take within society, the the good works you do, whatever you're doing in that position is, those are, that is work that is given to you by God to support society. And so that is a good work. Already in 1520 on this document, The Freedom of a Christian, some of that's going to come up. How we're, we're free from the labor of trying to make ourselves righteous. So now we're free to be a servant to all. That all our labor that uses our gifts in service to our neighbor is a good work. So for Luther, good works are comprehensively captured in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, exactly. And so the first, of, the first table of the Ten Commandments are, you know, and we... we typically reference the Ten Commandments as two tables. The first table is the relationship with God. The second table is the relationship with our fellow man. And so the first table has the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And so one way to think of this is that the, the first commandment is our heart of God. Uh, what is our, our relationship with God? How do we think of God? And then the second Commandment is going to be the words of God that we use, uh, how we pray, praise, and how we give thanks with our words. And then the third commandment, what we do before God in worship. And, and Luther's going to summarize what I just did right there. As he's making the bridge between the second and the third commandment, he's going to say the first commandment is our thoughts of God. The second commandment is our words of God. And now I'm going to talk to you about our deeds before God. Luther does these kind of catch-up moments. Uh, I had one person that... Um, uh, that taught me preaching, and he said, you always need to have on-ramps. And what he, he's pointing on is that on your preaching, you're, you're on the highway, you know exactly where you're going, but occasionally people get lost, they get distracted, they got off on the wrong exit because they thought your sermon was over, whatever it is. <laughs> it's wow. like, really, you're not done yet? <laughs> yeah, so then you need to give them an on-ramp to return back to your point. Right. And I, I mean, this is rhetoric, and I mean, those who are good at, at public speaking know the importance of having these kind of summary points that then bridge you to your next point. And, and Luther does that after each one of the commandments. I've talked about this, and now we're going to talk about that. And that's the way he summarizes these first three commandments. Thoughts, words, and deeds all related to God. Now, all of the good works are tied to that first commandment in Luther's mind. Because that's faith. That's faith. 
for him, first commandment is synonymous with faith. Right. And so if, it, let's say you do not steal, but that is without faith, well, that is not a good work anymore. You know, it, it's the, the, the faith is what makes these things good works. Uh, without, the, without faith, these are just things you do. And, and they may be helpful in terms of civic righteousness. Yep. They're all helpful. But when we're talking about a good work that's pleasing to God right. and supportive of the kingdom breaking into the world. Right. That's that's when we're thinking of a good work is this both and both vertically up to God and horizontally to my neighbor, bringing symmetry between how I think about God and how I think about my neighbor. A good work happens when all of that is done in faith. The interesting thing, Luther, and this is one of the other things Luther does a lot of in all of his writing, is he breaks things down into groups. He categorizes people. He categorizes things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and I, I personally I like that because it helps me sort of keep track of what's happening and different ways of looking at things. And one of them is when it comes to the faith, Luther listed four groups of people. Yes. And and so I'm, I'm going to go through. So the first the first group are the faithful who do not need the law but seek to love God and love their neighbor at every opportunity. That is like they're the spontaneous lover. Yes. And, and they don't need it described to them because it's just the fruit of their faith is found in their good works. And whether you told them that was a good work or not, they were still doing it. Right. And I, I've been thinking a lot recently about uh, Paul's, you know, faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love. And that is the you know faith grows into hope. A strong faith will, will produce hope and strong hope will produce love. Yeah, yeah, because you're no longer at that point. You're no longer just focused on yourself. You you have that hope. You have that confidence that everything's going to be fine. That God has you covered, and you're free to love your neighbor without without worrying about it. And an interesting connection to that that view of a good work as an act of charity is that in Latin the word for love right there is, is caritas, which is our root for charity. So faith, hope, and charity. And that some 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 translations use that. And so we want to have that charitable heart. Right. And so the first group that Luther described, they don't need the other nine commandments. They've got faith in God and their faith is so deep and rich that they do all these other things. I don't know if he ever thinks that there is someone actually in that group. I, I don't think he does. I think it's it's kind of that utopian ideal. If we were all perfect all the time, this is group one. Right. What's the second group, Mike? The second group are those who proclaim faith but seek to abuse the freedom that is ours in faith by using it as an excuse to sin. So this is the group that the nobility are really worried about. Absolutely. That you have a people that say, yes, I believe, so it doesn't matter what I do, so I'm going to just do whatever I want. Right. This is a, a, a concerning group, and they need some boundaries. They need the curb of the law. And we are, like we said, we don't believe anybody's in that first group. So this is a pretty big group. The second, second group, group. Is, is a lot bigger than we hope it is. You know, we don't yeah. want it to be as big as it is, but uh, it's pretty big. Yeah, this is the hypocrite. <laughs> this is the hypocrite. Yeah. Exactly. And the third group, they don't even try to have a fig leaf of faith. They just go in and sin as much as they can. And if you tell them something is a sin, I'm not sure if they care. They, I don't think they do. Uh, and and then, then the fourth group are the rest of us. 
trying our best, but still, and Luther, I'm going to quote Luther here, lusty and childish in their understanding of such faith and the spiritual life, and they must be coaxed like young children. So why do we have the Ten Commandments? Because on our own, we are, as he said, lusty and childish. We need these boundaries. We need these lines. We need to know what does God really desire of us? What would it look like if I was a godly person? I know I have faith. And I know I should just spontaneously know everything that's good, but because of my sin, my view of what is good has become a little clouded. Right. And we do our best. We're trying. We screw up. But it's a, it's a journey. And no matter which of these four groups you're in, the starting point should be faith. And that gets us into Luther covers, where does faith come from? And he says... Without any doubt, it does not come from your works or from your merits, but only from Jesus Christ, freely promised and freely given. So faith does not originate in works. The cause of your faith is not the works that you do. The cause of your faith is the work that Christ has done. And he puts it this way. Faith must spring up and flow from the blood and wounds and death of Christ. And then finally, he finishes this up with, he says, if you see in these that God is so kindly disposed toward you that he even gives his own son for you, then your heart in turn must grow sweet and disposed toward God. And in this way, your confidence must grow out of pure good will and love, God toward you and yours toward God. And one of the reasons he's trying to describe the origin of faith in the wounds of, and blood and death of Christ is because there is some thought that you have people who don't have faith, but you describe to them the works that faithful people do. You have them do these works. And as they do these works, they develop the habit of love. And as they develop that habit of love, then they grow to believe in God. So there is this thought that you have people in the world, they don't believe in God, but you tell them the rules. They follow the rules. They follow the rules often enough that finally it's just a part of the rhythm of who they are, and then they slide into being people of faith. Like an outside-in sort of thing. And Luther is totally rejecting that. He's saying, no, our good works are inside-out. That starts with Christ, God through Christ's work, transforming us on the inside, and it, that, that slowly works its way out into good works. Now, there's going to be people that do come to church because that's the rule. That's the, the character of the neighborhood. It's the culture that they're in. But that still isn't why they're going to eventually believe. They're going to eventually believe because of the word that they hear when they go to church. Right, right. So the first good work is the commandment to have faith in God. The second is to honor God's name and not to take it in vain. And Luther says, after faith, we can do no greater work than to praise, preach, sing, and in every way laud and magnify God's glory, honor, and name. So remember how I said that first commandment is our thoughts of God. Uh, What do you believe in your heart? The second one is your words of God. So Luther gives, again, a couple of illustrations. Uh, Then he gives two, two men. So the first, the first is a poor man in whom nobody can see many great works, but he, is joyful, but he joyfully praises God when he fares well and with entire confidence calls upon him when he is in adversity. And this first man, Luther says, is doing all this and he's not even inside the church building when he's doing it. He's just going about his day and he praises God for the joys he has his, and he calls upon God's aid when he's struggling. No one sees it. He doesn't make a big show of it. He, uh, there's a woodcut that got uh, done with uh, Luca, Lucas, uh, 
Luther's sermon on St. Michael in 1522, and he shows a man clicking through his rosary, just numbering his prayers. And everyone he said in worship can hear the clicks of the rosaries as people are moving through it. But here's a poor man at home. Nobody hears the click of his rosary. Nobody hears the numbering of how many prayers he's done. But this man is doing a good work. Who's the second man? The second man is the guy who fasts and prays much, endows churches, makes pilgrimages, and burdens himself with great deeds in this place and that. For him, praising God is a very small matter compared with the great picture he has of the works of his own devising, in which he perhaps praises himself more than God and takes more pleasure in them than he does in God. Thus, he storms against the second commandment and its works with his own good works. Yeah, so this is the man that is so loud with his own good works that he doesn't hear the good work of Christ. This sounds an awful like, lot like the, the, the Pharisee and the church uh, that it Christ does. talks about. It does sound like that. And, and so this is the challenge that our good works have this ability to elevate ourselves. We make ourselves holy. And Luther says, when you do that, when you lift yourself up through your good works and elevate yourself rather than directing the attention to what God has done, you have actually sinned against the second commandment. So then he says, well, how do we resolve this problem? And Luther says, the correct use of honor and good name is when God is praised through serving others. And if men want to praise us and not God working in us, we ought not to tolerate it but do all we can to protect ourselves from their praise and avoid it as the very worst of sins and as robbery of God's honor. So it's in this section, Luther talks quite a bit about what prayer looks like. And he talks about how you should pray just common prayer, that you should have uh, not much concern for the fanciness of your words, but just pray. And he, he even quotes from the book of Baruch, which is a part of the Apocrypha, where Jeremiah, the prophet's secretary, is named Baruch. And this is a letter of Baruch to the people of Jerusalem. And this is kind of interesting, first of all, because it shows how Luther was using the Apocrypha, which is a book I'm, I'm not that familiar with. But in, in this letter to Baruch, uh, Baruch tells the people of Jerusalem that, and the people of Jerusalem at this moment, as he's writing this letter, are under attack by the king of Babylon. And Baruch says, pray for the king of Babylon and for his family and for his kids, that all may go well with him. Wow. And so this is what Luther calls just the common prayer. Pray for the good of another. Even if it's somebody he, attacking you. Even if it's someone attacking you, even if it's your boss, whoever it may be. He said, take away all the fanciness of words. Just be common in your prayer for the good of the other. One of the things when I read this from Luther talking about trying to avoid where, where you do a good work and people will want to praise you for it. And you sort of push that back to God. You say you don't tolerate it, Luther says. Reminds me so much of uh, in the Bible, whenever Christ does a good work and the Bible always mentions, oh, and they praised God that he, uh, you know, that men were allowed to do. And I always think people must have been very different then than they are today, you know, because Today, people would be like going, saying, and actually you do see it in the Bible where they want to, uh, they want to make Christ the king. It's like they, they want to go after the person who's doing this good stuff. And now in Christ's case, it's the right thing. But they did it with Paul. They did it with Peter. They did mm -hmm. it with over and over and over when again. And these servants of God are lifted up as kings and, and these servants then pull back and say, no, not me. 
God is is the king. Yes. And, and when the, when you have someone who doesn't do that and, and, and then lauds and magnifies themselves, it doesn't go well. Mike, you're so kind. I said in this section, Luther talks about prayer. It's actually in the third commandment he does that. Well, we'll keep going. We'll get so there. let's go on to the third commandment and, <laughs> and cover that. Okay. So, um, so Luther starts out talking about the third commandment, which is thou shalt hallow the holy day. And that's... That's a not, little bit of a different translation, but remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Right. Or right. thou shalt hallow the holy day. So he's not really fond. First of all, let's talk about, you know, in those days they had all these feast days. And I have friends who are in Europe today. Uh, you know, a lot of, I do a lot of international work and I have a lot of friends in Europe. They still have feast days in, in Europe uh, that they recognize in different cultures there. And Luther says he wishes that all the days of our, our Holy Mother and all the other saints were transferred to the next Sunday. Yeah. And his point is, he said, when we have all these days, they become days of rest from our labors and become moments when Satan gives us uh, vice in our 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 emptiness of time. And that's what ha- was happening. The, he said, uh, Luther says that in those feast days where people are supposed to be focused on God, they end up getting drunk. They ended up having, making trouble. They had the day off work and it was party time. So Luther says, move all the feast days onto the next Sunday and then work, work hard, work so hard. You don't have time to get into trouble. Right. And then on Sunday, rest from your labors and find your exercise in what God has done for you. He also talks about, and then he says, worse than that, which that's pretty bad. But he says, worse than that, the mass and the sermon are heard without edification and the prayer is said without faith. It has almost gotten to the point where we think it is enough to watch the mass with our eyes, hear the preaching with our ears and say the prayers with our mouths. It has reached the stage that men try to gain heaven by outward acts. And, and there's a Latin phrase that Luther and Philip Melanchthon then, when he writes the Augsburg Confession, talks about this uh, participation without faith and thinking you will receive the benefit of the service. And it's called ex opera operato, by the work of the work itself. Right. And, yeah. And this is the notion that you would receive a benefit to your treasury account of good works by attending church, regardless of whether you believe or not. And Luther talks about the correct way to go to church here. He says, uh, if it is, what's the correct way to go to the church? Luther says, it is for this reason that no one can benefit from attending mass unless his heart is deeply troubled and he longs for divine mercy and desires to be rid of his sins. Or unless if he has evil intentions, he has changed during the mass and comes to have a desire for this testament. So when you're with the family and your kids are in church, you're trying to figure out what is the right way to teach them to participate in worship. And I, I think there's a, a mother and father and they want to make sure their kids sit still in church. No matter what their kids are doing, they want them still. And I think more than that, that's not my desire. My desire is that the child is able to listen, but at an age-appropriate level. Yeah. But through it all, they're said, this is a place where we hear God's word. This is a place where we come with our sins and we find forgiveness and welcome to teach them the heart of faith and the praxis of faith at the same time, but to never make it more about the practice and less about the faith. 
It yeah. wants to start with teaching. We're I, here because we believe in God. I was always appreciative of the church that we went to when my kids were young. My daughter was very squirmy, and she would sometimes crawl underneath the pews. She would, and people smiled, and it was not a problem. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize at the time was that she was listening to little bits and pieces of what was going on around her. Yeah. And she, that really impacted her faith. You know, and it's going to church, even with her squirming and, you know, everything else, she learned a lot about faith and, and her faith is very important to her. And so at the end of a worship service, the measure of who was there in a good way is not by the person just who stood and kneeled and said all the right words, which could be good too. But it's the person who came there hurt and broken and left fed and forgiven. And he puts another category in there where they come in and they're just there, but then they get broken during church. Mm -hmm. But that's that brokenness, that recognition of our sin. So finishes up, uh, Luther does these three commandments by calling us to have faith. He says, thus we see that this commandment, like the second, should be nothing other than a doing and a keeping of the first commandment. That is a faith, trust, confidence, hope, and love toward God, so that in all the commandments, the first may be the captain, and faith the chief work and life of all the other works, without which, as has been said, such good works cannot be good. And then he'll talk a little bit about the importance of faith and good works with the three commandments. And then he's got this summary quote, God is not hostile to sinners. Only to unbelievers. I, I love that. That's a that's a great quote. But one of the things, and then after that, he gets into this sort of, and I, I I I've read through the treatise on good works a couple of times, and I picked up on this this last time reading it, and it, it's worked its way into my prayer life. And Luther says that when we pray the Our Father, the the first three, um, th- first three petitions in the Our Father track right with the first three commandments. So our Father in heaven, Luther says, these are the words of the first work of faith, which according to the first commandment does not doubt that it has a gracious Father in heaven. And the second, hallowed be thy name. How does that track? Uh, That's, Luther says, in which faith desires that God's name, praise, and honor be glorified, and that God's name be called upon in every need, as the second commandment says. So we've got our thought of God, he's in heaven, and he's our father. We've got our words of God, they're hallowed by his name. And now the third, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, our actions of worship towards God. Luther, Luther says, thy kingdom come, in which we pray for a proper Sabbath and true quiet rest from our own works, so that only God's work is done in us, and that in this way God rules in us as in his own kingdom. And then that fourth petition, thy will be done, is essentially commandments 4 through 10. We've talked about reading the treatise on good works. Uh, We'll have in the the website blog link for this podcast episode a a link to kind of a public domain copy of the treatise on good works. Also, if you happen to have a copy of Luther's works, uh, the American edition, it's in volume 44. You can find on Amazon an uh, annotated edition of the Treatise on Good Works where Timothy Wangert uh, writes a commentary uh, with many of the points along the way, and that's uh, published by Augsburg Fortress. Now is a good time for a beer. All right, so our beer today, 70 plus, uh, this is by Old Nation Brewing Company. Old Nation Brewing Company right there near Lansing. 
<laughs> something I just said awakened my Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> it just told us about the process of fermentation. I love it. Uh, Alexis is always listening. I hope she listens to this podcast and maybe gets some will. good advice on good works. Uh, so this new Orthodox India Pale Ale series by Old Nation Brewing. What, what do you know about it? Uh, well, this is. Uh, I, I actually I went through and there was a lot of uh, generally. Uh, uh, I, I enjoyed it, uh, but I I I am a pretty uh, easy. Uh, easy customer for any beer maker. So, but so I, I, what I did was I, I printed out what, some more expert ideas on what this is, and they uh, they had some interesting things to say about this. And this is from uh, they're, they're saying, it, and it did have a great pour, lot lots of head, very. It's a golden with haze. It's a hazy golden mm-hmm. color, um, like you would expect from every IPA. Uh, then they, they, they point out that it has the aroma of a tangerine, pine, and citrus, along with floral notes and a bit of grainy sweetness. I guess I didn't pick up on the, the pine. It has a little, little, you might have a better nose than me, but I tasted the tangerine for sure. Um, it, it, it reminded me a little bit of when I would get uh, the tangerine in the metal can with the pole tab. And sometimes you would open that and you go, I think it's gone bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you'd finish it anyways. At least I would. <laughs> well, this is, this is actually, it has, a, it has a nice tangerine smell to it. It has a nice citrus smell to it, I, I thought. It's, I think in terms of the, the tannin of the, the pine is the kind of just maybe that's a little bit of the bitterness. Yeah. And now on the can, it said about Old Nation Brewing, we've made IPAs of all kinds in our 20 years of craft brewing, but the classic West Coast IPA is one of our absolute favorites. To us, a West Coast is about a straight-down-the-middle Pilsner, malt, bill, and hops, which brings lots of pine and citrus notes to create a dry, hoppy, aromatic ale like no other. It is a mild IPA, and that's one of the things I do like mild IPAs. I've sort of there was a period there where I was really into the the more hoppy stuff and I've sort of moved away from that and this is sort of catching where I I I live now when it comes to a beer. This is a, a just a real nice mild IPA. It's it's good. And the name 70 plus comes from the IBU. Oh yeah. The yeah. IBU is 72. Right. Right. So it's good stuff. Uh that uh, the the uh, was it New Orthodox? Was that what that is? Or no, Old Nation. Old, Old Nation. Nation, but it's their New Orthodox series. They've got a series of uh, IPAs in this tradition, I guess. And uh, the, 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 the they're, they make some good beer. That's, they do. They had that that beer that we M forty three M forty three, which yeah. is that just at least here in the Detroit area, everybody was raving about it when it first came out. One of the neat things on the can is they tell you exactly where the hops and are from Columbus, Simcoe, Amarillo, um, and Idaho 7. Do they have like a proprietary, is that Idaho 7, that's a proprietary hop, I think. I, I think that's so. something they, they created themselves. They call it on the can, our proprietary hop, Idaho, se- Idaho yeah. 7. So yeah. that's where you got that idea, because they want to trumpet in themselves. There we go. All right, so we're moving now to the second table of the law. And now, interestingly, when Splayton had written to Luther and said, you've got to write something on good works, Luther starts writing, and he writes a lot on the first commandment, a lot on the second commandment, a lot, writes a lot on the third commandment, 
and he starts to realize I'm writing too much. And so the final uh, section shortens up quite a bit. And in fact, when he writes on the ninth and 10th commandment, it's the last paragraph. It's just a paragraph. Yeah. Like we got 20 pages in the first commandment and we get one paragraph on commandments eight. And it's sort of, it, sort of start tapering down. Like the, the first commandment. He didn't pace himself. No, he did. The first commandment goes on and on and on. Second commandment's a little bit less. Third commandment's a little bit less. Fourth commandment, he actually covers quite a bit with the fourth commandment. Yeah. But the time he hits the fifth and sixth, seventh, it's it's really dropping off fast. But why does he spend so much time on the fourth commandment? Because he sees it as the foundation of all civil society. So the fourth commandment is honor your father and your mother. All right. This is the relationship between a parent and child. But it's not only that. It's the relationship we have with everybody in society. You, you are either a child or you're a parent to someone. In, in this, he, he brought out a couple of points that I thought were real interesting. The first one was um, starting with the, the talking about the relationship between parent and child. Um, he brings up two common ways that parents are dishonored. And the first one is when the child is in open rebellion against the, the parents. And that is obvious. Obvious. The, the second one sort of surprised me that he brought this up. And so I'm going to, he says, the second is more subtle, where parents don't effectively teach the child that they are sinners. And then he goes, in this situation, the parents love the child, and the child loves the parents, but the child is only encouraged to be a good reflection on the parents. And so he goes into, this is Luther talking now, it is only to please men and to get ahead that they train their children for worldly honors, pleasure, and possessions. The children like this, the children like this and of course, they obey very gladly without any back talk. Luther calls this, idol worship, which was sort of shocking to me. This is, this is sort of a shocking portion of Luther's. And I, I, it's like, you know, the Luther says the parents do what King Manasseh did. The King sacrificed his son to the idol Moloch and burned him. What else is it to, but to what is it, but to sacrifice one's own child to an idol and burn it when parents train their children more in love of the world than in love of God. That's, that's a, damning <laughs> you know, So when a parent says to the child uh, what you are doing is to get far in the world. That, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Right. Earthly wisdom, use it and get further and further and further along towards being a success. And they don't teach their child any way, anywhere along the way that you're a sinner. What they've done is essentially offered their child up for sacrifice. That's to right. The world. To be a good reflection on themselves. And this is, this is one of those things that it is very subtle. It is, but it is, a, it really, Luther does draw out the importance of, of, of placing God in his place and keeping us in our place. And that's, that's, that's what this is all about. So it's okay to tell my kids, you've done wrong. You've made a mistake. You've hurt people. And it's not just a oopsie accident, but this was wrong. It's necessary. It's not just you should do it. I mean, it's not just doesn't matter whether you do it or not. You should do this. Right, right. And if you don't do that, if you're always sort of like, well, you know, people, you know, you might be seen poorly if you do wrong. You know, if you if you place judgment into the hands of others to on how they see your child, you know, people might think less of you. You know, the, that's where the reason isn't that you're a sinner. The problem isn't that you're a sinner. The problem is that you're going to be judged. That is sacrificing that child on the, on like, 
<laughs> like Manasseh did. Oh, my goodness. We've got some parents right now that are here in this, and I hope you realize it's not too late. <laughs> I'm glad I'm reading this after I had kids, after my kids moved out. <laughs> but teaching humility. It's a hard hard thing. As we think about what uh, you're writing on the the Magnificat that you're working on right now and how you talk about one of the the gravest dangers that Luther worries about is the arrogance of pride. Yeah. Yeah. And how in the Magnificat he sees this as a way of illustration towards humility being the honorable path. Right. Mm. But, But the danger of chasing humility at the same time. Uh, and so, I'm gonna be more humble than you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you win that one. <laughs> so let's keep going here. Um, uh, so let's uh, Luther then moves on to the relationship between the, the 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 to the church, the person and the church. And he says the second work of this commandment is to honor and obey our spiritual mother, the Holy Christian Church, and its spiritual authorities. This was a little surprising given what was happening in his life right then. And he recognizes this too, that the spiritual authorities don't always act honorably. Uh, He says the spiritual authorities behave toward their responsibility like those mothers who forsake their children and run after their lovers. As Hosea 2 says, they do not preach, they do not teach, they do not restrain, they do not punish, and no spiritual government at all remains in Christendom. Luther spends quite a bit of time here trying to explain why he's fighting with the church, even while he knows he's supposed to obey the church. He explains that we need to remember that this is the fourth commandment, and and that's something that's real critical. If the church is disobeying the first three commandments, then... We are held to disobey the church. If the and church call is, them back to the first three. And call them back to the first three. So, so that we honor the church as long as they don't break the first ta- table of the, of the Ten Commandments, the first three commandments. And this is why Luther is so concerned about calling the church to reform, because he sees a healthy church as fundamental to the building of society. If we have an unhealthy church, then everything else is going to remain unhealthy as well. Right. Then Luther moves on to the civil authorities. And according to Luther, it's a sin if we either disobey the civil authorities unless they instruct us to do something that is wrong against God or men. Uh, Luther then says it's, it's even a sin if we grumble against the government. Now, this is previous to the invention of democracy, where the government tells us we have a responsibility to grumble, <laughs> and this is sort of I, I not to grumble, and I think the, the the key here this is this would be a very interesting thing to modernize to look at at how we apply Luther's teachings today. I think in the same way that he is calling the church to reform, he would direct us to call the state to reform. That there's a difference between grumbling and calling to reform. Grumbling would be that just that gossip that foments anxiety. That's a, that's true. That's that's a good distinction. Where you know the the the, the to, to reform requires us, and I think a big part of this is to want the best for our opponents. Is to want the best for our government. Is to want the best for and 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 hope to. Im- to reform them, to help them to become the best that they can be. And that's the goal of any, dis, any discussions that we have. 
where, where the civil discourse today is breaking down is where the ambition is not for the government to get better, but that you are no longer my government, and I get to make whatever my idol is my government. Right. And this is so Luther. This is this is something that I think you know as I read through Luther, and he he touches on this over and over again, and I always have to recognize. He's working in a different environment than us, but there's a lot that we can learn from that. And, and, that's, and the same thing goes for Paul uh, in the first century. You know, when Paul, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, the Roman emperors were real great guys. Except still in First Timothy 2, he says, pray. Pray for your, your king. Luther is going to finish off the discussion on the fourth commandment by talking about the flip side. So he's talked about the rulers of the church, the rulers of the state, but now he's going to talk about the servants, the worker responsibility to obey their lords and ladies, masters and mistresses. He's going to spend a little time going through both sides of the relationship about how workers should be obedient and masters and mistresses should not be high-handed. Luther then sums up all these relationships by saying that obedience is the duty of the subjects and considerateness is the duty of the masters, that, they, that masters need to be diligent to rule their subjects well, deal kindly with them, and do everything to benefit and help them. And this word master isn't describing slave master. I mean, that's how much I think in America that word master is heard now. And that's, yeah, that's a dangerous word, and probably we should have, but that's... I in a more modern a, translation, I think they would have found a different word to use instead of master. Yeah, uh, leader, you know ruler, something else. But master is a, is a very difficult word. Uh, um, boss, manager, there's all sorts of different ways to look at this um, that, are, that are not as emotionally loaded. The remainder of the document is dedicated to the rest of the Ten Commandments, and Luther will say they deal with men's passions and lusts in order to kill them. So you, you learn the commandments to help guide your passions and lusts, to put those passions and lusts down and rise up with uh, faith-filled good works. And this is the section where Luther puts the pedal to the metal and we just blow right through it. Uh, he's just going And that's very what we're quickly. doing too. And so we're going to quickly finish this up. So do not kill, not a great time to seek revenge. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery is a commandment to be chaste. So according to Luther, it makes even indecent words a sin. And thou shalt not steal is a commandment against every kind of sharp practice which men perpetrate against each other in matters of worldly goods. So uh, Luther has a great quote here. I'm going to take a little bit of a moment uh, with this. Some people will say, well, then, just rely on that. Do not be concerned and see whether the roasted chicken will fly into your mouth. <laughs> There's an idiom there that I just don't get. I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, be careful that that roasted chicken just flies in your mouth. I don't know how it got there. I sure didn't steal it. Um, so it's... And so I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, if, if we don't pay attention to the intricacies of business, then how are we going to feed ourselves? I think that's what he's getting at. And, and I think, you know, you're going to have just, you know, what are you planning on? Having roasted chickens fly into your mouth? You know, what's that going and, and that's, that, that's then he, and he comes back and he says, you know, that's, that's not, it goes, I do not say that he is not to be anxious, not covetous, but he is not to despair that he is not going to have enough. So it's it's he's he's trying to draw. Yes, you worry about the about ha about feeding yourself, feeding your family, taking care of everything. Absolutely, but do not despair. Trust and, God. And now it's not just about how you benefit your own family, but he says if your enemy needs you, 
and you do not help him when you can. It is the same as if you had stolen what belonged to him, for you owe him your help. We owe not just the guys we have a great time with, we owe our enemy our help as well. Absolutely. And then according to Luther, thou shalt not bear false witness is one of the greatest commandments since we have to risk life and limb, property and reputation, friends and all that we have to fulfill it. And if you think about Luther's life, this is very, very true. Luther, in order to not bear, to speak the truth, in order for him comes to Comes at a cost. Comes at a huge cost. And, and when we speak the truth... We are willing to lay down our life in validity of that truth. So the Luther says there's a couple of ways that we commonly sin in speaking the truth or in lacking our speak, speaking of the truth. First is in temporal matters, by misleading others or even lying. Luther also includes, includes keeping silent in the face of lies here. And the second way is in spiritual matters. We are to proclaim the gospel in the face of the disfavor of others and any other kinds of persecution. And the last paragraph is Luther finishes up with a short discussion on covetousness, and he says the last two commandments are perfectly clear. They forbid the sinful lusts of the flesh and the coveting of temporal goods. These evil desires do no harm to our neighbor, and yet they persist to the grave. My hope is, as we've talked about this treatise on good works, you see the revolutionary character of talking about good works as not just things that take place in the rituals of worship, but they are the way we treat one another every day of our lives. One of the things that I've, uh, I, I spent some time reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ethics and to see him struggling so much with trying to figure out what ethics are in a Lutheran perspective and then coming to Luther and reading his so simple view of what, because this is really ethics that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. and it's so applicable and not in the weeds at all and it leaves the individual to sort of work their way through their own individual situation. I I think, you know, I think Luther masterfully dealt with ethics in this document. I think what makes ethics so hard for people is the concept of self-preservation and sacrifice for the other and always trying to figure out how to balance those two. And it, it, but I think it's important not to try and tack that down too too tightly. Mm-hmm. You know, you always have to do it this way. You always have to do it that way. Rather, Luther starts always do it with the starting point of faith. No, God is going to be with you. That He's not going to leave you or forsake you or abandon you. That you can trust in God and now do what God has called you to do. And it may cost you more than you can imagine, but you already have more than you can imagine because you have the love of Christ. Amen. Amen. So that's a sign-off on this episode on the Treatise of Good Works. Again, you can find it in Luther's Works, Volume 44. Look on Amazon. Uh, Timothy Wenger's Annotated Edition is a pretty uh, good copy to read. Or there's also some good public domain issues out there as well. You can contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or catch us on our website, graceontap-podcast.com. And anytime we have a new episode, we post it on Facebook. So we've got a Facebook page and you'll search Grace on Tap and you'll find us pretty quickly on Facebook. Uh, If you would really appreciate anything you put into iTunes, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Reviews are great. They help other people find the page as well. Have a great day.